But William didn't even have to think. And he pulled from under the counter a small, thin, red volume, torn and tattered at the edges. I know that I repulse you, but please, let me tell you a story. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Always a pleasure to have you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show, no matter how fantastical, spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. Today, we're going to have a great time. We're going to bring you a story called uh, The Golden Thread by songwriter and storyteller Susan Reed. You're going to hear from Susan Stone with The Beauty and the Malamed. And you're going to hear uh, uh, an entry in the Radio Family Journal coming up in a little bit. And you're going to hear a story called In Search of Charles Dickens by Lanny Peterson. It's going to be, like we said, a fun hour. Now, you know the feeling when you're craving a certain food, but you're not quite sure what it is you're craving? Or when you're bored and you have a little itch to get out and do something, but you can't tell what you're in the mood for. You want company, maybe, but you aren't quite sure who you'd like to hang out with. You still haven't found what you're looking for, right? Even if you don't quite know what it is that you're looking for. And that idea of characters who haven't quite found what they're looking for and keep searching for one reason or another, for one thing or another, is kind of the theme behind the stories that we're going to bring you today. The stories by Lanny Peterson and Susan Stone and Susan Reed and in the Radio Family Journal later on. And, of course, in this story that we're going to begin with. This is a story from Margaret Reed McDonald. Margaret Reed McDonald, we call her the world's librarian. She's been a librarian all over the world. And, of course, she plays her auto harp and tells stories to people all over the world, too. And in this story, uh, this is a young girl who refuses to get a new toothpick. Every day she cleans her teeth and hides her old toothpick until one day it gets lost in her messy room. And as she goes about cleaning, she realizes that searching for this lost toothpick has taught her about something more significant than even cleaning her teeth. This is Margaret Reed MacDonald here on The Appleseed with a story called Chin Chin Kobokama. You're sure to enjoy it. Chin Chin Kobokama, a folktale from Japan. Mariko went to bed each night, she cleaned her teeth with a tiny toothpick. But Mariko was too lazy to throw the toothpick away. She would just hide it under a corner of her tatami mat. She had been doing this for so long that there were hundreds of wooden toothpicks hidden under her floor mat. One night, Mariko was awakened by shrill little voices. Chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama. On the floor of her room were hundreds of tiny 
samurai. Each little warrior carried a sword. They were charging each other and shouting. Jin Jin Kobakama, Jin Jin Kobakama, Jin Jin Kobakama, Jin Jin Kobakama. In the morning, Mariko was bleary-eyed. She had not slept a wink all night long. That night, Mariko had just fallen asleep when Jin Jin Kobakama, Jin Jin Kobakama, Jin Jin Kobakama, Jin Jin Kobakama. They were at it again. Hundreds of tiny samurai waving their swords. Stabbing all around her room, Mariko sat as still as possible. She watched them fight. Chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama. Mariko drew her feet up under herself. She watched in alarm. She could not set one foot outside her bed for fear the little samurai would slice off her toes. In the morning, Mariko looked sleepier than ever. Her parents couldn't help but notice her sad state when she came to breakfast. Mariko, what on earth is wrong? You look as if you haven't slept at all. Poor Mariko broke down and began to weep. I don't think you will believe me, father and mother. Every night, my room is overrun with tiny samurai warriors. They slice the air with their little swords. They stab everything in sight. I dare not leave my bed for fear of being chopped. That night, her father came to her room. He sat quietly in one corner with his sword drawn. And as Mariko fell asleep, hundreds of tiny samurai began to crawl out from under the tummy mat. Each little man was dragging a tiny sword. They jumped up, began at once to duel. Chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama, chin chin kobakama. Mariko's father watched all this closely. He saw that each little sword was really nothing more than a. Toothpick. In the morning, her father questioned Mariko, "Do you have any idea where those little samurai are getting their toothpick swords?" Slowly, Mariko pulled back her tatami mat. There were hundreds of discarded toothpicks littering the floor. Her father explained that the tiny samurai were drawn to her room because she provided so many excellent swords for their practice. Rico spent the day. Cleaning her room, she picked up every toothpick. She cleaned out every crack in those floorboards. She swept and she swept and she swept and she swept 
until her room was clean. That night she slept well at last. And since Mariko never littered her room again, the little samurai did not return. Chin Chin Kobokama, a story told for you by Margaret Reed MacDonald. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story from Lanny Peterson called In Search of Charles Dickens. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Chin Chin Kobokama, shared with you by librarian and storyteller Margaret Reed McDonald. Now, up next, we've got a story from Lanny Peterson. She's got a doctorate in psychology and connects with audiences across a variety of backgrounds. And in this story, while adventuring across England, researching Charles Dickens, her role model, her hero, Lanny comes across a wonderful and inviting man who is the next best thing, if not better. Lanny's story of living in the present is a fun reminder for each of us who perhaps still hasn't found what he or she is looking for. In Search of Charles Dickens from Lanny Peterson, here on The Appleseed. It was some time in my late teens that I first began to truly believe that the world could be my oyster. And each time I dared to pry open that shell just a little bit, I would usually find a pearl. The spring of my junior year of college, that pearl was a semester of study in England. For an English major, this was a dream too good to be true. I was going to read English literature in the land of the bard. And as that spring unfolded, I brought myself to the beaches of Wales to curl up and read Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood. I found myself on the rolling hills of Scotland with a copy of Bobby Burns' poetry. I headed off to Ireland to lean against Yeats's gravestone with a copy of his poetry. I ventured out to the moors to find the Bronte sisters. And as the spring was coming to a close, I knew it was time to find Charles Dickens. Where did I want to read my copy of Great Expectations? Should I travel to the deep corners of the streets of London or out to the countryside to find the whereabouts of Pip? After much careful consideration, I thought, no, I need to go to Portsmouth, the place where Charles Dickens was born. It's there that I could understand his roots, walk the streets that he walked, look for the characters that filled his imagination. And so on a Friday afternoon when classes had ended, I filled a backpack put a sleeping roll under my arm, and caught a bus to Portsmouth. I did not pause on the main streets of the bustling town, but quickly made my way down winding alleys till I found myself at the dockside 
and there in the working man's part of town, I sat myself down on a stone wall overlooking the wharfs, and while watching the men load and unload the ships headed off to exotic foreign ports, I unfolded my tattered copy of Great Expectations and began to read. As dusk came upon me, I realized it was time to find a bed for the evening. In all my adventures, I had never had trouble finding a B&B to settle down. But on this night, in this part of town, there was none to be found. Walking in and out of the small dark alleys, I searched everywhere, but came up with only bars and taverns. Finally, as the dark was settling in with all its fullness, I noticed on the side of one small building a sign that said, Beds. I didn't go through the front door, but went around to a side entrance and knocked mightily. It took a few moments for someone to appear. He opened the door brusquely, stood a good six inches above me, peered down and said, What do you want? I am in search of a bed for the evening. I, I saw the sign. And he laughed. We don't have beds for your type, he said, and shut the door. My type, I said. What's that? I thought of moving on, but there was nothing else around, and dark was upon me. I felt the need to knock again. After three loud raps, he appeared, opening the door, staring down. What do you want, he said. Please, I said, I, I have nowhere else to go. I will pay you well if you have a bed. Please, may I use it? Wait a minute. I'll have to ask Charlie. And he disappeared. It was a good five minutes before he appeared again and said, Follow me. He took me up a back set of stairs with just one light bulb hanging from the ceiling. We proceeded down a long, dark hallway, doors lining each side of the wall, inside just single beds with a mattress. We came to the last door at the end of the hallway, next to a toilet, and he said, In there, lock the door. Be out by seven tomorrow. There's no breakfast. Fine, I said, that will be great. How much? Five pounds, leave it on the dresser. I quickly shut the door behind him, locked it tight, took out my wallet and put it under the mattress for safekeeping, and sat down to wait for morning. After an hour of sitting by myself, I became aware of the rumbling in my stomach and the growing din of laughter and fun downstairs. What could be wrong with taking a peek, I thought. It's just a tavern. So I tucked some money in my pocket, locked the door behind me, and made my way down the creaking steps to the bar below. The smoke-filled room was filled with men. It took a few moments to realize I was the only woman there. With false bravado covering my great unease, I made my way to the bar and sat down. The bartender was a man short of stature, short on hair, wiry, rough-skinned. He turned to me and said, What'll you have? A cider, I replied. 
He filled the mug without expression and placed it in front of me. This is a place Charles Dickens might have been, I thought, and I turned to my right to meet my first character. Hi, I said. Where are you from? Ireland, he muttered. Oh, a beautiful place, I said. I've been there. I've read Yeats. And he stared at me. How long since you've been home, I queried. Years, he said. Years? Why would you stay away so long? Killed a guy, he said. Can't go back. And I turned to the man on my left. But before I could get out another question, I felt a hand on my shirt pulling me forward and the bartender looking me in the eye. We don't ask a lot of questions in here, he said. I run a nice place. Sure, I I didn't mean any harm. Who are you? he asked. I am an American. What brings you here? I am in search of Charles Dickens. Oh, I've got some really bad news for you, kid, he said. I may be wrong, but I think he died a long time ago. I know, I know. I was just reading his book and thought I might find some of his spirit here. How old are you, kid? he asked. I'm 20, I said quite proudly. I heard the small laugh he seemed to make only for himself as he seemed lost in thought. When I was twenty, he went on, I was in the trenches of North Africa. It was war for kids in those days. I headed off thinking I was going to conquer the world. I remember as I went out the door, my mother said, take a book for the journey. So I grabbed a book off the shelf without even looking at the title, The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. That and the Bible my mother had handed to me were the only two books I had for three years. And I swore then if I ever got out of that place alive, the first thing I was going to do was find me a different book. Funny how it goes, he said. When I made it back here and got married, I kept part of that dream. Each spring, my wife and I would head into London to Blackwell's bookstore. You heard of it? Yes, I said. They had this spring book sale where you could buy a box of books, sight unseen what's inside for just three pounds. Each spring, I bought a box. Must be 18, 20 boxes still sitting in my basement. Never opened a one. I have no idea what's inside. Who is it you say you're reading now? Charles Dickens, I said. What makes you think he's here? Well, this is where he was born, where he grew up. I think his house is not far from here. Charlie paused and turned to the large, burly man who had originally greeted me. 
Bill, watch the bar. I'm going out. We're going in search of Charles Dickens. And so it was I found myself in the company of Charles Bailey, walking the streets of Portsmouth down to the docks. It was there that he explained to me how the ships were loaded and emptied and some of the places they were bound for. We watched the moon rise over the water. He brought me by the small flat where he had grown up and then gone on to live with his wife until his mother had died and where now he lived alone. We walked on through the night to the moon set and we returned to the quiet tavern from whence we had begun. And somewhere in the course of that night, as I told him the story of great expectations, he went from being Mr. Bailey to Charlie, and I somehow became Pip. Entering the locked front door of the tavern, he said, Go upstairs now, Pip. Lock the door behind you. Out by seven. You have a bus to catch to get out of town. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for showing me Portsmouth. Go to bed, he said. It was at 6.30 that the abrupt knock woke me from my sleep. Come down now, he said. I'm coming. I'm on my way. In that I had slept in my clothes, it didn't take me long to get ready, to pull on my shoes, put my knapsack on my back, and hurry down those back stairs. The floor was beer-sticky from the night before as I tried to make my way to the front door. But I was called by Charlie's voice from the larger room. In here, he said. Peering around the corner, I saw that a small place had been cleared amongst the many glasses still littering the bar top, and a stool pulled up in front. And there, a plate on a napkin was two pieces of cold toast and a fried egg. Breakfast, Pip. Oh, Charlie, I I didn't expect that. Only the best for Pip, he said. And as I sat eating my cold eggs, watching him clean up behind the bar, I realized that in coming to search for the spirit of Charles Dickens, I had been touched by the spirit of Charles Bailey something far richer than any book could have brought me. He turned with great animation from his work and said, I've been up all night, you know. Went down into the basement when I got home. Decided to see what was in some of those boxes. There's some really good things. Couple of Charles Dickens. That's where I'm going to begin, he said and I found something else I had forgotten about Pip. And he pulled from under the counter a small, thin, red volume, torn and tattered at the edges. And emblazoned in gold on the front cover, I read, The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Charlie, this is your book. You should keep this. Oh, no, not that one, he said. I've read that one, thank you very much. It's yours now. Take it with you. Find another adventure. And as I finished my eggs, said one more goodbye, and headed out the door, he called me back. Hey, Pip, he said. Yes, Charlie. 
When you go in search of Omar Khayyam, drop me a line, would you? That's a story I want to hear. Lanny Peterson with In Search of Charles Dickens here on The Appleseed. And our next story is a folk tale with a surprising twist on Beauty and the Beast. You won't want to miss it. It's coming up after a break. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed Before the Break, In Search of Charles Dickens from Lanny Peterson. And our next story is a Polish folktale with a surprising twist on the Beauty and the Beast story. When a beautiful young woman searches and fails to find a lover, she's surprised to meet a haggard, injured man with surprising charm, and he shares a secret about his past with her that makes her ever more grateful for his bravery and selfless heart. This is from Susan Stone. It's called The Beauty and and the Malamed. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Amal is Gaven. Once upon a time, there lived in Poland a rich and beautiful young woman named Rachel. Her skin was as soft and rosy as a peach. Her hair was black like a river at night. She had eyes like stars. She wore dresses of silk covered in lace and beads, and anyone who looked upon her saw her goodness as well as her beauty. When she came of age, she married a Malamed, a teacher named Moshe. You would think that Moshe would be as tall, handsome, and strong as Rachel was beautiful, but Moshe was skinny, pale, and lame. He had only one leg. His hair stuck out in all directions, making him look like he had just survived a storm, and his nose, a large one, held his wire-rimmed glasses through which he squinted. He hobbled around on his crutch. Rachel loved him just the way he was. People who were strangers to the town would look at them and wonder about this odd-looking couple. How did they come to be together? Here is the tale of the strange marriage of the beauty and the Malamed. Now Rachel, whose mother died when she was young, lived with her father, Avram Yankel, in a huge home on the edge of Amdenov. The walls were made of the finest wood. Velvet drapes lined the windows, and colorful rugs lay on the floors. She had the best of everything, food, servants, clothes, but her teachers taught her only music, sewing, and languages. Rachel's father, knowing his daughter to be wise and curious, wanted her to know more. He came to her one day and said, "'Dearest daughter, it is time that you are taught Torah.' This was wonderful. Rachel was thrilled because girls usually didn't get to study Torah. I will find you the best teacher, he said. But you see, this was a problem. Her father was troubled. He thought to himself, what if I get her a young man, a learned man, and she falls in love? 
I want her to marry a rich man, not a poor Muhammad, a poor teacher for my daughter. Hmm, I know what I'll do. I'll find an ugly man for a teacher. Surely in all the land there is one who is as wise as Solomon, but as ugly as a toad. This way she can't possibly fall in love with him. So the word spread throughout all of Amdanov that Reb Avram Yankel, the wealthy landowner, was seeking a teacher for his daughter. Many men came to apply for the position. Reb Avram found something wrong with each. This one's eyes were too blue. This one's nose was too perfect. Out they went. One had large ears. But still, thought Reb Avram, his daughter might be attracted to him. No one was right. No one knew, of course, that the Muhammad had to be a brilliant teacher, yet unattractive enough so Rachel would not fall in love with him. And then one day, a man named Moshe appeared at his door. He was a young man who lived alone on the outskirts of the town and didn't come to Amdanov very often. I've come to teach, he told the servant. Reb Avram was sitting by the fire, reading a book. The doors opened. Thump, thump, thump. He looked up at the sound. It was Moshe's crutch thumping across the floor. Reb Avram dropped the book. His mouth flew open. There in front of him was the strangest-looking man he had ever seen. My name is Moshe ben Shmuel. I am a Malamed and have come to teach your daughter. Now Reb Avram had heard of this brilliant but lonely scholar. He had heard of his great wisdom from the others in the synagogue. Well, uh, yes, let's see, I, I have heard of you, young man. Well, all right. You shall be my daughter's only teacher. Serve her well and you will be richly rewarded. So every day, Moshe the Malamed and Rachel the Beauty met for the lessons. Rachel was an eager student. She loved learning Torah and Talmud. Moshe told her stories, too, of wise men and women, of demons and angels, of giants and goblins, and funny tales, too. Moshe made her laugh. Rachel was clever, and she made him smile. Rachel seldom looked at her teacher. There would be pity in her eyes, she was sure and she didn't want to embarrass him. So she kept her eyes down, concentrating on the books, or listening intently to the tales. Fall turned to winter. The snow melted into spring, and flowers blossomed, as did Moshe and Rachel's friendship. They studied and laughed and learned together. As she learned with him, her heart opened to this wise man, for although on the outside he was not blessed with beauty, his kind heart and goodness shone through like the sun. One day Moshe put down a book, turned to Rachel, and spoke in a way she had never heard him speak. Rachel, he began, and his voice was as smooth and gentle as his body was broken. I know that I repulse you, I know you do not look at me for fear that your eyes will betray your pity. 
But please, let me tell you a story. When I was just a soul in heaven waiting to be born, I learned Torah and Talmud and all there is to know. And then an angel announced the name of my future wife, my beloved. All of the other angels cried out in horror and wept. Why, I asked, why are you crying? Is something wrong with my beloved? Please, show me what she will look like. Well, I pleaded and begged, and finally I was shown a vision of the woman who would be my kala, my bride. She had only one leg, and her body was hunched over. Her face was plain, and her hair was like straw. I knew she would suffer insults and unkindnesses in the world to come. Please, I implored the Holy One, allow me to take on the ugliness that was intended for my wife. I will be ugly so she can be beautiful. And God honored my request. I was given only one leg, a plain face, and hair like straw. And my future bride she was granted the beauty which was to be mine. And then the angel Layla, who could not bear to look at me, turned away and failed to tap me under my nose when I was born. This is why I didn't forget all that happened in heaven. So you see, Rachel, I don't have to look. I know who my intended wife will be, and she will be beautiful. Rachel looked up at Moshe now and saw to her dismay that he indeed had no little dent under his nose. And who was appointed in heaven to be your wife? she whispered. It was you, Rachel, Moshe replied. Rachel's heart opened to Moshe, and her tears fell like rain. A blanket of clouds lifted from her eyes, and she no longer saw his outer appearance, but could only see his kindness and the love in his eyes. It was because of him that she was so beautiful. Rachel the beauty and Moshe the Malamed were married under a chuppah of white roses. Everyone at the wedding could only marvel at Moshe's appearance. For Rachel's love was so powerful that somehow, somehow, even though Moshe hadn't really changed, everyone at the wedding thought them the most handsome couple they had ever seen. And they lived surrounded by their books and their children in utter happiness for all of their days.
The Beauty and the Malamud from Susan Stone here on The Appleseed. Now, have you ever wanted to speed time up, fast forward, skip some hard moments or boring moments? Well, in this next story, a young man sick of waiting finds a magic golden thread and feels like all his problems have now been solved. One tug on the string and boom, he jumps forward in time. Sadly, skipping forward isn't all it's cracked up to be and he finds himself suddenly at the end of his life having missed all the best parts. This story is told for you by Susan Reed, an award-winning storyteller and songwriter, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Let me tell you about my friend, William. He hated to wait. He was always hankering for the next thing, hoping for something better. In the winter, he longed for summer, and in the summer, he'd rather be skiing. At bedtime, he wished it were morning, and in school, he longed for the weekends. William loved to play. His favorite friend was Anna. She lived one house over through the woods, and she was as good a playmate as any boy. She liked climbing trees, playing pirate. She even liked catching frogs. When I grow up, thought William, I will marry Anna. One day, on his way to school, as he walked through the woods to meet Anna, he came to the clearing by the big oak tree. You know, every day he and Anna had tried to climb this tree, but that lowest branch was just out of reach. He thought today might be the day that he'd finally grown enough. So with that, he set down his book bag. With his eye in the sky, he jumped and missed. Oh, he was so frustrated. With his hands on his knees, he said, I wish I were grown up. And just then, he heard a rustling in the leaves, and a fairy came walking by. Yes, 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 I know your name. You know I watch you all the time. Always frustrated, always anxious to grow up. You know, William, I may have just the thing for you. And with that, she held out her hand. And in it was a magic ball. It was smooth, shiny, silver. If you looked closely... You could see there was a single golden thread hanging from the ball. And if you looked even closer, you could see it was moving. It's your life thread, William. Everyone has a life thread, you know, and this one is yours. Do not touch it, and time will pass normally. But if you wish for time to pass quickly, just give it a gentle tug and an hour will pass, like in a second. You can tell no one, or it will disappear. Do you want it? Did he want it? William didn't even have to think. He took the ball from the fairy, thanked her, grabbed his book bag, and ran off to school. 
morning as he sat in class, he was musing about all the ways he might use that golden thread. When all of a sudden, there was the teacher standing right in front of him. <coughs> William. William, for the second time. What is seven times three? William, have you been daydreaming again? Well, William had been planning to try out the thread at home. But now seemed like a good time. He reached in his pocket, took hold of that thread, gave it a gentle tug. Next thing he knew, the teacher said, Class dismissed. Don't forget your homework. Wow. This was gonna be good. That night at home, his father said, William, have you taken out the trash? William just grinned at his dad. He said, Dad, consider it done. He took hold of that thread again and... It was done. His mom called. William, time for bath. Oh, Mom, do I have to? Oh, William, just come quick. It'll be over before you know it. William said, Mom, you got that right. Took hold of that thread again, and it was over. Well, a few days later, in school, after a particularly grueling math test, it occurred to William, why pull that thread just a little bit each time? Why, why if he gave it one mighty tug, school might be over altogether. So with one hand on the ball and one on the thread, he pulled it as hard as he could. And there he was building his first house. He was outside climbing and hammering and sawing in the sunshine all day long. He was happy. Now all this time, William was still sweet on Anna. She was in college now, and they planned to get married as soon as she finished. Two years seemed like such a long time to wait for Anna. But William just said, Honey, it'll be here before you know it. And it was. Well, soon after their wedding, Anna announced she was pregnant. Well, do you think William could wait to find out if it was a boy or a girl? No way. It's a girl. William, the baby's crying. I'll take care of it, dear. William, I'm pregnant again. It's twins. William, it's time for diaper change. William, the kids are sick. I'm pregnant. <gasps> Seven children. And many tugs later, William was a middle-aged man. He was surprised one day to look down at his magic ball and see that the thread that had once been golden had now changed to silver, just like the color of his own hair. He felt a little guilty for all the times he'd pulled it, and he vowed to only pull it when it was absolutely necessary. Several years passed, and times were hard in the world. There were wars, famines, tra 
tragedies of every kind. Business was drying up. There was barely enough money to put food on the table for his large family. It was so difficult to watch his children have to suffer. He thought about pulling that thread just one more time to get he and his family through this difficult time. He wanted to, yet he didn't. Yet he wanted to. Finally, one day, life was too hard. And he decided to pull the thread just one more time. And there he was, alone on his front porch. Old, creaky, tired. And to his dismay, when he looked down at the thread, now it had changed from silver to a dull and lifeless gray color. He decided to go for a walk in the woods and think things over. been a long time since William had walked in these woods. The small saplings that he tripped over as a boy had now grown into full trees. He could barely make out the path he once took. And at last he came to the mighty oak tree and sat down underneath it to rest. when he heard a familiar rustling in the leaves. Oh, hello, William. Hello. How are you? William, have you had a nice life? Why, it was the fairy again. Have I had a nice life? I, I, I don't know. You know, your magic ball, it's been wonderful because I've, I've never had to suffer or wait for anything. But yet my life, it, it seems to have passed so swiftly. I, I've hardly had time to take in what has happened to me. Oh, William, 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 never happy, never happy. William, how would you have liked things to be different? William thought for a moment. Well, maybe, maybe if you'd given me a magic ball where I, where I could have pushed the thread in as well as pull it out, well, then I could relive the things that went badly. Oh, William, William, you ask a great deal. You know, William, each moment comes but once in life. saying I'm going to do it, William, but if I were to grant you a wish, what would it be? Well, William didn't even have to think. He said, oh, I want to live my life over again. 
L- like the first time, only only without your magic ball. I want to have the good times and the bad times, so that at least my life won't pass so swiftly and meaninglessly, like like in a daydream. The fairy eyed him, then jumped up, grabbed the ball from his hand, and disappeared into the underbrush. Just then, William heard a familiar voice coming down the path. Willie, Willie Bo, Billy Cow, Gilly Do, Dilly. Why? It was Anna. But it was the young Anna, and William, he too was young again. Willie, what are you doing here? I've been waiting for you. Hurry up! We're going to be late for school. We're going to get in trouble. So with that, William grabbed his book bag and followed Anna down the path. He couldn't help but notice what a bright and sunny morning it was. He was excited to see his friends on the schoolyard, and even the thought of lessons didn't seem so bad. In fact, he could hardly. From storyteller, songwriter, arts educator Susan Reed comes that story, Golden Thread. You know, thinking about not being able to quite find what you're looking for, even though you get kind of an itch to make a little change. Well, these stories have sparked a memory in me. How about we wrap up today's episode with an entry in the Radio Family Journal? The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it. On the apple seed. I work every day in a recording studio. And part of any recording studio worth its salt is that it has stuff hanging on the walls to control the way sound waves act in the room. Stuff on the walls to reduce the degree to which sound bounces from the walls or the ceiling in a way that's going to mess up the sonic quality of what gets recorded for you to hear. I've recorded in studios with all kinds of stuff on the walls. I've recorded in studios that have quilts hung on the walls to dampen the sound. And I've recorded in studios that have carpeted the walls to do the same thing. And I've been in studios in which the walls and ceiling are covered in those foam mattresses shaped like egg crates, you know the ones? And I've been in studios where the sound has been controlled by insulation, you know, the pink fiberglass stuff that comes in a big roll, that kind of insulation, covered in burlap. In the studio where I work most often, the studio in my home, the studio where I am right now, the walls have these fancy baffles made of this special acoustic foam treatment set into wooden frames. And they're just hung on the walls like you might hang pictures, resting on nails pounded into the studs beneath the sheetrock on the walls. There's not much to it. Not much that's remarkable about it, and not much that's less remarkable than you'd want it to be. But... Have you ever got an itch to change something, a little sense of something with which you'd be a tiny bit more comfortable if only it were a tiny bit different, something that no one would understand but you? 
Well, I had one of those itches working in the studio a few days ago. I thought, you know, the nails I used to mount those baffles are a little small. I bet they'd be a little more secure if I took them down and removed those short nails and pounded in some longer nails and then hung the baffles back up. Now, this is, in fact, as silly as it sounds. The baffles were in no danger of coming off the wall. They'd hung safely up there for years. The nails that held them on the wall were just fine. And no one ever sees the nails. There was no way anyone could be critical of them. Everything was just great. It was just great. But, you know, somehow I hadn't found exactly what I was looking for. Maybe you know the feeling. There's nothing wrong with what you have, except that you've got another idea that won't let go of you. And, well, I went out to the shed, and I got a couple of three-inch nails and a hammer, and I came back into the studio, and I took the frames with the acoustic foam off the walls, and I yanked out the old nails, and right into the holes left by the old nails, I pounded new nails. But about halfway in, the first nail began to bend, and I tried to pull it out with the claw of the hammer to take another shot at pounding the nail straight. It was really stuck in there. I braced the head of the hammer on the wall and really put some muscle into it, so much muscle, as it turns out, that the head of the hammer pushed right through the sheetrock before the nail came out. It left a big, ragged hole in the wall, and the nail was still there. Well, that little itch I described, that little itch to change a little something to make things a little better, in this case, almost imperceptibly better. One might, in fact, say imperceptibly better. Well, by now, I was cursing that itch under my breath. The nail, in the end, wouldn't come out at all. No idea what I'd run into. I got another nail and pounded it into the stud, now completely exposed due to the enormous hammer-shaped hole in the wall. And now I tripped to the store for a can of joint compound and then back to the studio where I patched up the hole. I vacuumed up the sheetrock dust made by the initial hammerhead through the wall. And when the joint compound was dry, I hung the baffle back on the wall. And, well, it looked and sounded and behaved exactly like it had before. And all it had cost me was a whole morning. You've probably had similar adventures. It happens. Something isn't quite right for reasons that only you can understand. You still haven't quite found what you're looking for, and you think it's going to take just a moment to get everything squared away, and suddenly you're up to your elbows in a project. It's all good, of course. Projects gone wrong are one of the ways you learn to tackle projects in the right way. At least that's been my experience. You learn stuff by experience, and sometimes you're just glad no one was around to see it. As far as this project goes, if you drop by the studio for a visit when it's good and safe, you'll find that the result of my morning's work is that the studio looks and sounds exactly like it did before I started. The only thing changed, really, is me. At least, I hope that's the case. We'll find out the very next time I get an itch and embark on another project. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal and for stories like Golden Thread from Susan Reed and Chin Chin Kobakama, a Japanese story from Margaret Reed MacDonald, or In Search of Charles Dickens, a little autobiographical piece from Lanny Peterson, or The Beauty and the Malamud from Susan Stone. It's always such a pleasure to be with you. Our thanks to Jen Baker, who wrote today's hour, and to our sound engineer, Stuart Foster, and our producer, Jeff Simpson. You can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast for something new just about every day on the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.